All right, we're in chapter 4, we're going to continue this, and uh, we're going to look at uh, 10 life lessons from the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria. We sort of started this last week, and we talked about Samaritans, and we talked about who they were, and, and, and the Jews' reaction against them. They were a hated people, and you see that in the top of your notes. I won't go over that again, but uh, they were avoided. They were considered heretics. They were considered mongrels because they intermarried with pagan people, and that went all the way back to uh, the split of the kingdom between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. We talked about that in great detail last week. But uh, into this uh, uh, setting, we see Jesus minister to those who were lost. He came to seek and save those who were lost. And so we see Jesus coming into the land of Samaria. Most Jews avoided this land because they didn't want to be contaminated by the filth of the Samaritans. They were hated. And so they would avoid. They Actually, they would cross over the Jordan twice if they had to head north from Jerusalem. But Jesus uh, had a different heart, had a different compassion. And we learn a lot of things from Jesus' compassion to the Samaritans people. Remember uh, Samaritans, uh, when we learn this, Jesus taught on love and Jesus taught on, on uh, ministering to those outside our people group, to those who we would uh, have a heartburn toward in our natural state. And we see that in the Good Samaritan. Remember in Luke chapter 10, we talked about that a little bit. The, the priest walked by, they turned their backs on him. The other laity walked by, they turned their backs. And then... Uh, one who pictured Christ, the good Samaritan, came and bandaged the, the one who had been beaten and left by the roadside dead. And so this is a picture of how we are to love our enemies, love those who, who despise us and pray for those who, uh, who would wrongfully uh, use us. So this is a good... So we're going to have ten life lessons from the woman at the well. And uh, hopefully these will be beneficial to us. The first one we've already talked about... And uh, it's found in verses 1 through 3. And MacArthur said, we are to avoid unnecessary, unnecessary conflict. And how did I differentiate between necessary and unnecessary conflict? The background is that John's disciples were having an argument with the Jews and with Jesus' disciples about purification and baptisms, the purposes for baptisms and all these things. And so Jesus left that area. He avoided unnecessary conflict. And what is the rule of thumb for us as Christians that we talked about? And I talked about this this concept of balance within the Christian walk. And what was the primary thing we talked about to avoid unnecessary conflict? Those of you who were here, what did we talk about? <clears throat> we talked about, uh, Chris uses, uh, has given us an example, but we want to be able to separate the primary from the secondary. We want to be able as Christians to avoid conflict about secondary issues that are not principal precepts of the Christian faith. And we are to be strong, unresolved, uncompromised in primary aspects and primary issues. Uh, 
Chris mentioned one, that Jesus is the only way. We cannot compromise. That is a primary aspect of the Christian faith. And we must, if need be, be conflicting, although in, be in conflict, although doing it in love with those who claim another way outside of Christ. We looked at 10 or 15 primaries and we looked at some secondary things. Uh, we wouldn't want to get into a, con, a state of conflict with a brother or Christ because they are not uh, to believe in the rapture and we do. So that would be something we don't want to get into a conflict or break fellowship with something secondary. But if necessary, we must be willing to get into conflict with a primary uh, aspect of the faith. We talked about that. I think we had good discussion. So that would be uh, the first life lessons from this woman in the well, and that is found in verse 1 through 3. Now we're on point 2, I think. We just started this. Let me look at this again real quick. Uh, we are on point 2, and it's verse 4. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And we looked at that word, and we understood from that word that that word needed was a big must. He was accomplishing, and he was setting to do his Father's will. He was ready to go into conflict with a people group that was hostile to him, hostile to the faith. But it said Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He must go. He had to go. Part of his purpose, part of why he came to seek and save lost people. We talked about this as we closed, that we have to have a heart for people. And we have to have a burden for people. We pray for people, we petition the Lord for people, and it must be that we have a God-given burden for people like Jesus did. And the toe-stepper to me, and I'm quite sure to you, is that sometimes we must admit that we don't have this sense of urgency, we don't have this sense of we must go. Some of us... Do not have a burden for people as we should, so we do not pray for them. For whatever reason it is, it's a selfish reason, it's a I don't want to get involved reason, it's going to cost me too much reason, but all of these excuses were not how Jesus lived his life, were not his example to us. And we talked about that in great detail. We looked up the verses that God had, that Jesus had a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman, a despised people group, and he went to her, and we're going to see some lessons. So that's where we pretty much stopped. Uh, We did two life lessons, and now let's look at lesson three. And I want to read again this discourse he has with the Samaritan woman. As he comes to Samaritan, Samaria, he goes out of his way to go to this woman because he needed to do it. So let's look at verse 5. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, referring back, of course, to Genesis, and the patriarchal system is set up uh, by God uh, for the nation of Israel. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, was wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it was noon. 
And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. We've talked about that in great detail. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. But the water that I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw any more. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke the truth. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. At this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or what are you talking with her about? The woman then left her water pot, water pour, water pot went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you don't know. And they said, the disciples said to each other, somebody's brought him something to eat. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they already white into harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may Rejoice together, for in this the saying is true. One sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified and told, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So we see this uh, confrontation, this uh, must that Jesus go through Samaria. And we see life lesson number three. And I want to uh, spend a little bit of time on this one. Jesus was a man... 
simple sentence is, Jesus was God. And we see the evidence that He's a man displayed how? Tired and thirsty. He's walked a long ways. Tight. He's a man. Fully God and He's fully man. Jesus was God. How did He demonstrate in the text that we just read, how did He demonstrate that He's God? So sometimes God... Jesus, as a man, displayed his the fact that he is God. Yes, yes, Carol. And sometimes he didn't. Remember, we talked about the calling of the disciples in uh, chapter two uh, when he called Nathaniel. He said, "Before Andrew came to you, I saw you under the fig tree." So he displayed prescience and omniscience. He he displayed a, a knowledge that's supernatural. Uh, and so sometimes he he did not. Sometimes he would say, "Who touched me?" Or he would he would uh, come across as ignorant of facts uh, because that was his purpose in that situation. But Jesus is a man, and Jesus is God. He shows himself to be a man by his uh, effect from the heat and the journey. He's thirsty and he's tired, but he also shows that he's God because he's prescient and he's omniscient. He knows. Uh, the facts about us as he did Nathaniel. Now, the importance of this is striking. Uh, you remember this book is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in his name you may have life and you may have it everlasting. That's the purpose of all this was written. And all the different reasons why he wrote this book was to show that he was deity. So what are some implications? And I'm going to put these over here, not in your notes, but I think important. Implications from this fact that he's a man. Why was it necessary for him to become man and there are many of them. Just give us some to camp on. He is a man. He's tired and he's thirsty. He's human in every way which we are. He's tempted in all points like we are, yet he's without sin. So he's a man. And the fact that he's a man, what does that help you today? How does that affect you today? Pardon me? So he is able to relate. And the Scripture uh, describes this that he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And so we see his relate. So he is a man, so he relates to men. He understands our trials, our troubles, our tribulations. He was tempted in all points like we were. He understands our weariness. He understands our inability. He understands our thoughts. He understands all of our weaknesses. He's touched with these feelings. He is, and because he is a man and he relates, he is sympathetic to our plights. And so that's why we can come to him in faith and trust because he understands. He's not just God, so he can't relate to the frailties of man. He himself humbled himself and he can relate to being a frail man like we are. So as 
Val said it's necessary for him to become like his brethren so he can relate to us. And the word that we like to use in theological terms, he can be our representative. He, uh, that's the next thought, but, uh, You're thinking the right way, Dwayne. So Jesus can relate to us. He can be sympathetic to us. And He can be our representative. He came to do what we were intended to do. We were intended to live in fellowship with God. But we failed. We fell at the fall. We fell at the... uh, With Adam and Eve, we fell. And all of us who've been born have been born with this sin nature. It's called original sin. And we cannot live up to His standards of perfection and righteousness. So Jesus, as our representative, the second Adam, He came to do what we could not do, right? So He came and He lived a perfect, sinless life. And so His sinless life is representative of what we could not do, okay? So that's why it behooved Him to be a man, to relate, so that He could be our representative, that He could be the righteous, perfect One who did not sin, and He represents us, right? The What we were intended to be. Everybody understand that? And then there's one between... The one that uh, Dwayne brought up, I'm going to put it in between... There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Jesus Christ. And why do I put mediator in between man and God? Yeah. Any of you baseball fans? In baseball rules and regulations, there is a player's representative and an owner's representative. And this, there is a mediator that mediates between owners and players, and generally that guy has been a player, and he is behooven to the owners. And so he is, he represents the players, and he represents the owners. Loosely implied, he represents man, and he, the owner, represents God, okay? Loosely, very loosely speaking, my best illustration. But as a mediator, he represents this side and he represents that side. So Jesus, as a man, represents men because he himself is a man. And as mediator, he also represents God because he is God. So as Dwayne mentioned, he's the mediator between God and men. And in his role as mediator, he is reconciling oh boy reckon see thank you we got a lot of good spellers in here good to know he reconciles god to men okay so as a man he does these things any other implications from the fact that he's a man that you can think of yes yes go ahead So herein is love, not that God loved us, not that we love God, but He loved us and has sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The wrath absorber. He absorbs our wrath as a man. All of our sin debt and rage that God has against men because of their sins is thrown upon Jesus Christ 
as man, the son of man. Okay? Many others, any others. It is necessary we understand that he's a man and he is God. Okay. What else? Any others here? Now is God. What are the implications from the fact that he's God? The Bible says that no one can forgive sins but God. And so as God, he is able to forgive men their sins. So the implications from this text that he's a man and he's God has many implications. What other implications? We should have a hundred on either side, but just for time's sakes. What other? Miracles. Miracles. The miracles and the signs from this book. There's eight signs. All of the signs and the miracles point to his deity, that he's God, and point to the fact that he, that men must believe in him, and by believing in him they have life. And so everything that's done, all the signs, give evidence that he is who he says he is. In this text, we see the most important verse is verse 26, and the most important verse says, I am the Christ, I am the Anointed One, I am who I say, who I say that I am. And that is verse 26. We talked about this a little last week. And as C.S. Lewis said, as I said this last week, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. And Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's fully God and He's fully man. Many other implications from this text, but he's a man and he's God. And as God, he is, has all the attributes of God and he reveals the invisible God. And we've talked about that in great detail over these last six, eight weeks. Any other comments or questions? He said he could see the vid- He saw things in people like he did the woman. Yes, he did. That's, a, that's an example of his mission. He saw things in people. And when this woman answers carnally because she can't spiritually understand what he's talking about, Jesus gets to the point and says, you're a sinner. And we'll get into that in great detail. But he saw things in people and Jesus always gets to the heart. He got to Nicodemus's heart. He gets to... Uh, this Samaritan woman's heart, and that's what he does. He, he, he avoids all of the minutiae and the arguments and these unnecessary. He gets right to the heart of the matter and he says, you're lost. You need to be born again. You need to repent of your sins. He gets right to the point. So Jesus is a man. Jesus is God. We see this as a life lesson from this text. Any comments about that one? Wanted to spend a little time on that one. The implications are necessary for the salvation of people. And they must understand these truths and believe these truths about Him and who He is. Point number four. And we see that in verse 10. We've discussed nine. We've talked about Samaritans, who they were, the attitude the Jews had toward them. The woman is just reiterating what has been a standard operating procedure within the nation for... 500 years. Verse 10, we see another lesson, and we see that salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift of God. 
It is not uh, it is not earned. It is not merited. It can never come from anything that we would do, any work that we would have done. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God. We know many verses on this. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Speaking of faith and speaking of all of salvation. And it is not anyone should boast about that God is the one who gives us salvation. So we learn from this. He tells this woman, Samaritan woman, salvation is a gift. The nation of Israel does not earn it by adhering to the laws of God because they do not adhere to all the laws of God. And if they adhered to all the laws of God, they wouldn't need to be saved. But Jesus said to this Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God and who says to you, Give me a drink. And so Jesus says to this woman, Give me a drink. And he said, If you knew, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. Now, what is this concept of living water? Salvation is a gift of God. And Jesus reiterates this point, and this is a component of salvation. We've talked about it. Uh, in the in the prologue, and we talked about it in the water, in the miracle of, of turning the water into wine. What is the living water he's talking about? Somebody said it. Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one that must breathe upon you. The Holy Spirit is the one who must create in you a will and a desire, and the Holy Spirit creates faith in you. So he says, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask for living water, this component of salvation that brings uh, salvation to men and women. So we see that, and, and he speaks to this woman because this woman would have had a rudimentary, and I say rudimentary with a capital R, understanding of this concept. You know, the Samaritans, they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament. They just believed in the Pentateuch. But they undoubtedly would have read or had had the Scripture had been read to them over the years and been passed down. So they would have a rudimentary understanding of this concept because it's found throughout the whole Old Testament. Let's look at these uh, important things. Uh, this living water, uh, uh, let's look at... Uh, John 6.35. This is going to be a, a topic that he talks about uh, in greater detail as he continues his ministry. Look at this, 6.35 John. Uh, he mentions this, uh, that he's going to talk to this woman, this Samaritan woman. About, look at John 6.35, I'm the bread of life. We're going to talk about the seven I am's of the book of John when we get to each one. But this is one of them we haven't gotten to yet. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. This concept, you're going to continue to draw this physical water, and you're going to continue to be thirsty, but he's going to further teach that I give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit satisfies your soul. And it satisfies your cravings that He gives you for God. And we'll talk about that in great detail as we get to it. But living water is the Spirit. And you see that in John 6.35. Move on to uh, uh, look at John 7. We're going to talk about this 
when we get to this chapter, but this is the great feast of, uh, of tabernacles. Uh, this is the, the last day of this feast. And Jesus cries out in 737, which is going to be the promise of the Spirit. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning his Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, as a believer, would you describe to me what it means, if you can, it's hard, what does that mean, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water? What does that, how do you describe that in your own life? You've been saved by God's Spirit. What does it mean and how is it demonstrated in your life? That out of your heart flows rivers of living water. Would somebody like to give a testimony to this? Consumed by spirit, love that. And you, because you're consumed by the spirit, there is a demonstration, and that demonstration is characterized by one thing among many, but one of the things that's characterized by love. Good answer, great answer, a right answer. Anybody else? What does it mean that rivers of hold, of living water flow out of your heart? How does the Holy Spirit affect and change you? Is going to be the answer to this question. Any answers? Changes the way you think. And the way you think changes the way you act. Right? Good answer. Another illustration of the rivers that flow out of your heart, living water. What else? Changing of the inner man. A demonstration that old things are passing away and all things are becoming new. The way we think, the way we act. And the inner man is changed and the inner man's temperament is changed. Instead of being angry and bitter and envious and jealous and all of these physical displays of being in the flesh... You are loving and you're joyful and you are patient and you're kind and you're gentle and you're meek and you are under self-control and you are filled with His faith. These are all evidences of that Holy Spirit that flows out of your heart. I think it also convicts you of wrong that's going on and, and also gives you then the strength to, to face those issues and, and love and Excellent. The Holy Spirit, as He wells up within us and He produces His fruit in us, we are convicted of our sin. And when we are convicted of our sin, we turn from that sin. And we do not live that way as a condition of our life. Our walk is not characterized by sin, but there is a conviction there and there is a turning from it. And a turning from than sin, and of course we turn to God. Any other ideas or explanations or help with what does that mean when you said, I will ask, 
you would have living water and it will flow out of your soul. Anything else? The Holy Spirit gives us peace. Peace. Causes us to be anxious about anything because we know that God's in control. Excellent. All evidences of the living water flowing out of our heart. Humiliation. Humiliation. We've talked about the humiliation of John the Baptizer. And that was a evidence that he was one of God's children. This Jesus needed to go through Samaria. An evidence that the Holy Spirit is flowing out of you. You're going to have a burden for lost people. And you're going to have a prayer life that is characteristic of your burden. And I would challenge you. You're going to have a love for the Word. All of these are, are outflowings of the Spirit that comes from knowing Him, the living water that Jesus is speaking about to this woman. There are many others. Think about these things. Life lesson we can understand. Life lesson number five. And this is one we see so if you've ever witnessed to someone and they look at you like they don't know what you're talking about, they don't. Uh, lesson number five, look at the woman's response after he talks about this gift from God and actually after he talks about living water, which is the Holy Spirit. Look at the woman's response, which is characteristic of a lost person. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? And she automatically goes, Are you better than our father Jacob? He drank out of this. So she didn't understand that this was a spiritual concept. Does everybody have this? Well, you don't need it because the verse is already there. But verse lesson number 5 that we see Paul reiterate. Somebody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And somebody commence reading from the notes. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, starting verse 6 through 15. Somebody read that for me while I write this up here. Lesson number 5 is that uh, spiritual things are not discernible unless God's Spirit starts working in your heart. We cannot understand the things of God. Who's got Second, First uh, Corinthians two, six through fifteen? Somebody just have at it. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, <coughs> not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. 
which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. When we share truth with men, men are not able to hear that truth unless God's Spirit opens their eyes and opens their hearts. Yet we are responsible to tell men the truth. So don't be discouraged, don't be frustrated, and don't be surprised when you start talking about God and His grace and Jesus Christ and the necessity of faith and sin that men are not going to understand. They are antagonistic towards it. They cannot hear it unless God begins the process of opening their ears. But continue to be faithful. Continue to pray for them. This woman reacted completely according to her nature. And her nature is flesh, and it is something that the flesh would understand, the physical. She could not understand the concept of living water and not being thirsty anymore. She couldn't understand it. Jesus, as a master teacher, understands that. He tells her the truth. And he understands her response. So he tells her something that's life lesson number six that she can understand. She doesn't understand the spiritual, so he tells her something she can understand. And he says, you are living in sin because the man you're living with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands. So you, Jesus always gets to the point. So He, Jesus, IDs the problem. He knows she don't understand the spiritual. She demonstrates it. So He says, let me be blunt with you. You're living in sin with the man. You're not married to that man. Your problem is your sin. Okay, That's why you need to be saved. That's why you need to understand that I'm the Messiah who came to seek and to save the lost people of whom you are included, dear woman. He identifies the problem. And the problem is, our problem is, the woman's problem with, everybody's problem is sin. So he, as a master teacher, says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus plainly tells this woman, she understands what he's saying, woman, you're a sinner. He IDs the problem, and the problem is sin. Okay? Everybody understand that? Very simple. The woman didn't understand the spirituals, MacArthur said. He described, he confronted the woman with her sins of adultery and sexual immorality. Jesus will not, nor has he ever condemned sin. He calls us to repentance. One little bugaboo, and I'm going to get on a, a real quick. John 8:11. I've heard a lot of Christians, as they talk about this, completely forget the rest of this verse. And it's generally Christians who are being, uh, uh, trying to, I don't know what they're trying to do, 
try not to judge other people, perhaps. And ID and their motivation is probably very good. If you've had a conversation with these people, they talk about this woman. And they always say, this is an adulteress, and the ones are going to stone the woman. You know, he's without sin, let him throw the first stone. And then everybody walks away from the oldest to the youngest. And then they always quote, Jesus says, who are your condemners? And Jesus said, there's, and the woman said, there's nobody here to condemn me. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And everybody say, there you go. You don't judge people. Jesus couldn't condemn the woman, so we're not to condemn the woman. But what does he say after that? Go and sin no more. He's not condemning her penally by death and the judgment of her sin at that present hour. But he's telling her, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from this, you will receive that judgment later. He's not saying there's no judgment for sin. He's saying at this present hour, you're not being condemned for it, eternal life and separation from me, but unless you repent, you will be. So everybody, I've heard so many people say, well, I'm not going to condemn because they didn't condemn, you know. And so, but it's go and sin no more. Jesus never says it's okay. He always IDs the problem. And He always says the solution to the problem is turning from that sin. So He did the same with this woman. And He tells her that, and later on, we'll get into this in a minute, you've had five husbands and the woman and the man you have now is not your husband. So Jesus identifies the problem. Life lesson number seven as we go through this. Yes, sir. And he still does every day, doesn't he? Praise to him. Not pleasant, but necessary. Not pleasant. Next lesson we see is Jesus ministers as he, as he must go to Samaria. As he, the great physician, came to seek and save lost people. Look how carefully and lovingly he does this. He defines men, men's problem. And he basically... Uh, uh, let me go to uh, the next. I'm going to skip seven and go to eight. Let's go to this. Make seven eight. Jesus defines marriage in this life lesson for those who say that Jesus never talked about this in the New Testament. Yes, he did. As a matter of fact, he talked about it in more detail than the Old Testament did. Jesus said that the man that you're living with now is not your husband. So as MacArthur says, marriage is and always will be, I like what he says here. It is, uh, in, in point eight, I've skipped one, but I'll get to it. Jesus, marriage is and always be restrict, restricted to a public, formal, official, recognized covenant. Only within marriage is the marriage bed undefiled. And in Hebrews 13.4 says, The marriage bed is undefiled, but God will judge adultery and sexual immorality. So Jesus defines marriage. It's not living together. It's not cohabitation. It is a legal, formal, binding covenant before God and men. Jesus defines it, and it is between a man and a woman, and it will never be anything different 
And it doesn't matter what our culture says. It's not okay to live with someone who is not your husband or your wife. God forbids it. He only recognizes a legal, documented, covenantal marriage. Everybody understand that. Can't forget that one. That's a life lesson that speaks to our culture today. Because He ordained it. It's the first institution He ordained, and He blessed it, and He said that we leave mom and dad and cleave to our spouses, right? And we're one flesh, and that's a picture of Christ in the church. Everybody understands what He does there. He defines marriage. He says what she's doing is wrong, and He told her what she was doing and wrong. Verse 29, the woman said, He's told me everything I've ever done. And so Jesus confronts her sin, He defines marriage while he's at it. And then I like this one. Jesus, in this life lesson, defines worship. He defines worship. Look how he defines it. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman... And that is not a derogatory term, as we talked about when Jesus was speaking to his mother. That's just like saying, ma'am. It's a sign of respect to those in those days. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Spirit, the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What are some things we learn about worship? Jesus defines worship. What is worship? Many definitions of worship. Uh, my favorite definition is Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So worship involves Self-denial. Worship involves obedience. Worship involves dying to yourself, yielding to Him. And that is your reasonable act. And worship will conform you to Christ. And worship renews our minds. And that comes by the Word. And as the Spirit integrates and energizes that Word in our hearts, He changes us. So Jesus is defining worship. And Jesus also says, the Father seeks. Remember what Terry talked about today? The Father seeks worshipers. Worship, And because the Father seeks you... You come to Him willingly because His Spirit draws you to Him and the Spirit shows you who Christ is and who you are. And so that process begins self-denial, obedience, conformity to Him. That word conform is shaped like clay. 
He's the potter and we're the clay and He's shaping us and we're eventually going to resemble Christ. I say eventually, huh? And prayerfully, we look more like Him every day. But He does that and that's what worship is. It's declaring that He's worth. He's worthy. It's humility as Russell talked about. It's obedience. It's self-denial. And it is part of worship. It's what worship is. What does it mean that God is a spirit? And what does it mean that those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth? We know what the spirit means. We means that He doesn't have a body like a man. Like that's the, uh, that's the Westminster Confession uh, definition. He's a spirit and He doesn't have a body like a man. Jesus defines and He exegetes God and He reveals Himself, God's Spirit, by His fleshly life. So we see that. But what does it mean He's a Spirit? And those who worship Him must worship in Spirit. Is that Spirit capitalized or there's a little s, right? Those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. What does that phrase mean, worship Him in Spirit and truth? What does that mean? The, this spirit is a little less, and it means our heart. Thank you, Dan. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit. This is our heart. And this is our heart that's not external, that's not, that's not, uh, does not think that it is saved by works, that is not proud. But this is a heart, an emotion, a will, a a lifestyle that's characterized by the big spirit, a capital S working in our S little spirit that's creating humility and conformity to Him. Not external, like the Samaritan woman would have thought, the Jews would have thought, how we in our flesh think, but it's He seeks to worship in our hearts, internal change, brought about by the capital S, Spirit. And in truth, what does that mean? Can I ask a question? Yes. In, in Spirit, would that, I mean, could it mean with everything you are, you worship God, everything you are? Absolutely. Totality of heart, mind, and will, and volition. Part of the living water that flows out of you. That creates this in you, the totality of worship. That's what worship is. It is produced by the Spirit. Characteristics of that are there. So we see that. So he said, the Spirit, he worshiped him in spirit and truth. That truth is God's Word, what the Word says. That Spirit is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's Jesus. It's all conjoined together. Salvation. He defines worship. He seeks, and so you need to, I need to examine myself to see if I rightfully worship God. Do I worship by being self-denied? Self-denying my, every day we've got to take up the cross and follow Him. Every day we have to understand, I'm crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself. That is an examination question for you to think about. 
do I live self-denial, obediently conforming to Christ? That's what worship is. It's not coming here and singing beautiful music on Sunday morning. That's part of it. But that's worship is Monday through Friday, Friday lifestyle. That demonstrates a heart changed by God. Okay? Everybody understand that? When he says, you're not going to worship on Jerusalem or you're not going to worship on your mountain, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. Remember we talked about that? That's in your notes. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem because the Jews uh, looked at the whole Old Testament. And the Old Testament tells us, particularly with David and reference to Solomon, that God has chosen Jerusalem to worship at. The Samaritans disbelieved in the first five books and they believed it was on Mount Gerizim where they first appeared to Abraham. So Jesus said, you worship on this mountain. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. We worship what we know. You worship what you don't know. Part of the reason they didn't know because they were disobedient, unfaithful, and intermixed mongrel group that had abandoned Christ, had abandoned God, had abandoned the, the uh, Pentateuch. And so Jesus said, you don't even know what you worship because of your disobedience and your unfaithfulness. We worship at Jerusalem. He says, he said, time is coming. Jesus knew, shows again his prescience. He knows that in 35 years, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there's not going to be a place to worship. So that's why he's telling people, you need to worship God in your spirit. Okay, it doesn't matter where you are, it's where he is. So Jesus is warning, being prescient, saying, Hey, Jerusalem's fixing to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. And, and worship is internal wherever you are. So Jesus teaches another lesson there. Are we moving right along? Jesus teaches us our purposes. And that one's gone. Jesus teaches our purposes. And He teaches us our purposes and He uses the analogy of the harvest. And so He explains to the disciples using anthropomorphic, using man, that man would understand. He teaches us our purposes. And look what He says to the disciples. He says, there is a field... And it's lost people. And that field is white unto harvest. And he says our purposes are to do what? What are our purposes? What does he teach us in 27 through 37? Look through those verses. Tell me some of the things Jesus teaches us about our purposes. And he himself demonstrates and shows. He never taught what he didn't lead what does He teach the disciples? And what are some of the things he, he teaches us about our purposes? Can you look at some of them for me? 27 through 37. To do God's will. That is one of our purposes. What else in the text? Be vigilant. And with that, don't procrastinate and have excuses. We're good at this. 
Don't say, well, it's cloudy, I can't sow. It's fixing to rain tomorrow, I can't go out and do anything. He says, look into the fields, they are ready to be plucked. Speaking of salvation of men's souls and our purposes to go out and, and do these things, we are to do what? We are to sow. And we may be privileged to reap what other people have sowed. You may share truth with somebody and that person has already heard the truth from Chris. And you may have the opportunity to lead that person to the Lord because of the sowing efforts of Chris. Or Terry, or me, or whomever it is. We're to sow and we will reap. These are purposes. Anything else can you see these things? Eternal, not the present. As we go into the fields, we're to have a heart for God and for people and want to see them rescued from ruin. Anything else? I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. God is the one that has to give the increase, right? God gives the increase. When I sent you into the fields to do what you haven't labored for, they are there. They are within your circle of interest. You must minister to them. You must share with them. Trust God for the increase. Be obedient to me. That's what He teaches us. That's what He taught His disciples. And that's what He showed as He shared truth with this woman of Samaria. We're to do this. Yes, ma'am. Yes, we're very comfortable in our own little niche. Everybody believes the same. We all have this in common. Nice. Fits into our human nature. We like it. We're comfortable. But look up and see. Takes effort. Takes time. Costly. Part of self-denial. Uncomfortable. Good. Any other comments about that? Barry McGuire's got the show called Ignite, and uh, it really, you know, you get different things that help you grow in your faith, but their whole thing is to be able to talk with people, and uh, basically what they do is they'll go out and talk to somebody, and a person said, well, how do you do that? I mean, does it make you nervous and happy mm-hmm. to talk to somebody mm-hmm. about their, their faith and where they are? And he says, you know, when I give my heart to to God, it's God who's doing this, not me. So I feel perfectly confident to go out and talk to people about God because it's not really me. So if they accept it, they accept it because of God. They don't accept it because of me. Absolutely. But it's one of those, you know, they don't do church. They just go out and evangelize all the time and they talk about their experiences, but this whole thing about sowing and reaping, they just make it so real because he says, you know, we plant that seed and somebody's going to water it, but it's God who God, gives that increase. God does the increase. makes it real clear in, right. I guess, human terms. But we 
Make no mistake, we are responsible. Acts 1.8, Matthew 28.19. This verse, you think about this verse. God says we are ministers of reconciliation. And God says that we are ambassadors for Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. through 20. This teaches, this dovetails with this teaching. We're ambassadors, we're ministers of reconciliation. God has reconciled men to Himself, and we are called to invite men to be reconciled to God. And that is a part of worship. Okay? Part of worship. And then lastly, we see that Jesus does save. You think, initial reading, that it fell on deaf ears. But we see the results of faithfulness and obedience and trust that Jesus does save. And we see that in 39 through 40. The many of the Samaritans, he stayed there two days. It didn't tell us how many. And it doesn't tell us how many Samaritans who were saved there went out and shared truth with other people. Jesus says, he says, the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. She was the one who sowed, and she was the one who said, look at this man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? She witnessed faithfully. And then look what they said, verse 42, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard. God's Spirit has given them life and they have heard with their ears, spiritual ears, and because they've heard, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So ultimately, Jesus does save, and He uses men in His providence to bring about His salvation to people. Why He does that, why He would use the treasures of salvation, why He would entrust it to sinful men, has always boggled my mind. But He will bring about His people into His kingdom through His process, and that process includes us. And that's a privilege. Ten lessons from the woman at some well. Next week we'll do uh, sign two, and we will get into a very, very beautiful chapter five, and who knows how far or how long we go. Oh, that was in uh, John 4? Yeah. Yeah, 27 through 37. Sorry. Yeah, the 27 through 37 is in John 4. <laughs> You're welcome. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for these life lessons. Thank you for your purposes. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for our role in being obedient and faithful. Help us to worship you in our lives and demonstrate that you are the well of water that is, that is flowing from our hearts. We thank you that you came to seek and save lost people. We thank you that you saved us. Uh, we were dead and you saved us. We thank you for mercy. Thank you that you're the physician. And we pray that we would always be faithful and persevering, praying for our lost brothers and sisters, and praying for those who uh, have no hope and no faith. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.